Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I'm joined by NHS surgeon, Dr. Curran Ranjan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm sure so many of the listeners will probably be familiar with you. They probably follow you on social media and I'm sure that they've enjoyed learning a lot from you. And now, of course, you've written a book for all of us and the book is called This Book May Save Your Life. So pretty bold title. Um, and to be honest, I was I received an early PDF copy and in preparation for this conversation, I'll be honest, I went through the book and I thought, where am I gonna start in this conversation? Because you've done such a good job of covering so many topics. And of course, as a doctor, you have to have knowledge on so many different things uh, within the body. And But but typically I feel like we we kind of hone in on one thing. So we might focus on, on one element of our of our health, physical or mental, but you've done a really good job of kind of going head to toe and um, yeah, walking us through that. So yeah, I guess, why did you want to approach the book, this, will say, this book may save your life in that way? And where should we begin? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about a lot of things. And I feel that most people could improve their health, not with wild sweeping statements and big promises, but actually just small changes that are consistent in their daily lives, whether that's just eating more fiber or fine tuning their sleep or knowing a bit more about how to prevent neurodegeneration and the slow decay of the brain, which is inevitable as we age and as we live longer. And my interests are more than just the digestive system, which is my area of practice as a surgeon. I like to learn about the whole body. And even when I practice, even though I might be removing someone's bowel cancer, it's important to know that the digestive system is connected to essentially every other organ system. You know, all the body parts are connected like an orchestra. The gut is connected to the brain. The brain is connected to the lungs and heart. The heart and lungs are connected to the skin. All of these conditions and organs are manifesting in various different ways. So I think it's important just for the average person listening at home, watching videos of mine at home, to just have a basic understanding of different things about their health and improving health literacy is the core of why I've written this book. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. And I think, as I said, because we only have uh, one hour today to talk to you, I suppose I wanted to hone in on a few things that stood out to me reading the book. Now, on this show in the last, I guess, few years, I've done episodes where I've done a deep dive speaking to a doctor specifically about sleep or specifically about alcohol. I've spoken to lots of different health and fitness professionals on this show about, you know, the different types of um, training for cardiovascular health, etc. So today I was thinking, which topics would I like to discuss that maybe I haven't gone into so much detail before? And also, I'll be honest, I just had it in mind of how I'm feeling and how mm. I know lots of other people are feeling at the start of a new year. So the first thing that stood out to me that I underlined uh, was something that you wrote in the book where you said, inactivity is a silent killer. 
Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this, because for the listeners of this show, they will know I am a keen runner. And I think, you know, I'm probably pretty active in general. So other than my running, I do Pilates, I do some strength training, and I also have three kids. So, you know, I have a son, two stepchildren. So we're very busy and active because our lifestyle is, you know, scooting, walking, football, bikes, etc. So I think I'm, you know, a fairly active, I'm probably quite high up on (laughs) the the level of activity. But this term inactivity, I think is sometimes a little bit vague and people don't always know necessarily what that means. Um, So I guess maybe starting there, I know that in the UK, 40% of people are currently classified as inactive. So this, this line inactivity is a silent killer is really powerful. And I think if people could understand how much the modern world and being sedentary and being inactive, how how dangerous that is. I think that's a really important message. So first up, could we define what inactivity means? Yeah, for me, inactivity means prolonged periods of you know, sitting down, not moving essentially. And a lot of the time that can be involuntary. If someone has certain medical conditions, that obviously may prevent them from being as active as someone without a certain disability or chronic condition, which allows that. But I think for someone who is able to get up, move, exercise, walk around, run, whatever it is they want to do to be active, you know, quote unquote, I think our sedentary lifestyles these days, it's a vice of the modern world where we've got access to cars, elevators, lifts, you know, all of these various things. And actually, again, we're not encouraging necessarily every single person to go out and run a half marathon or do a Ironman competition. It's actually just going slightly more than what you're doing and slow, sustainable steps to improve your fitness, whether that's trying to aim for 5,000 steps a day from your current 1,000 or going to 10,000 from 8,000. There is no one magic number for any single person, but it's actually just increasing what you're doing. And like I said, it can just be moving more by walking more or swapping, taking the lifts and walking up three flights of stairs. And the beauty of just moving, exercising, is that every time you walk, you put stress on your joints and on your bones. And that actually causes your bones to evolve and change. Your bones and joints and your body needs a certain degree of stress to grow, to strengthen, to maintain bone density. And every time you do any sort of physical activity and exertion, your muscles, when they're activated, they release these chemicals called myokines. And myokines actually talk to the brain, they improve brain health and have positive impacts on the cardiovascular system. So exercise really is a fantastic sort of magic pill that improves every aspect of bodily health. Yeah, and I think that, of course, we have to acknowledge that in January, living in the UK, oh gosh, the the challenge is real. And I feel like even as someone, like I just said, I'm active and I'm probably on one side of the the scale. Even me, I'm someone who I think I'm quite self-motivated, but in the winter months in the UK, I have to, it's so 
it has to be a conscious choice. I know that I'm going to be far less active than I am in the summer just because of the amount of daylight that we have, just because it's dark all the time. It's cold all the time. Like even with the kids, as I said, there's so many places where we might drive where in the, in the summer you might think, okay, we'll scoot there. But when it's freezing cold and raining and dark, you know, you go into football practice or you go into tennis or you're going to school, you might go in the car. There's all of these, I think, barriers in the winter months in the UK that make it so difficult. And people kind of, maybe they go to their one gym class or maybe Mm. they do their, you know, yoga in the morning. But the rest of the day, it might be 23 hours of the day that they're sedentary and then they, or more, and they just have their one moment of exercise. So with all those barriers in mind, it is dark, it is cold, but we have to keep our bodies moving. As you said, we can't wait for the summer to decide to get active. So what would you, yeah, what advice would you give to people if they are really lacking in motivation? Because it affects your mental health as well, doesn't it? And your mood and your desire to exercise. Absolutely. And there's a common misconception that to do these hard things, you know, going out for a run, doing exercise, going to the gym in the dark winter months, there's a misconception that it's all about willpower and that willpower is a finite resource. And I think that's been debunked a lot of the times and it's more about habit forming. The reason why a lot of the times we don't feel the need to do these things and have ready-made excuses, like it's cold, it's raining, I need to get in the car, my gym kit isn't wet, isn't you know ready to be worn. We have excuses because we don't have routines. And if you build a routine, and the easiest way to build routines with things that you don't like, for example, you want to go to the gym, but you want to get into a routine, you don't really like the gym, how do you get into that routine? It's positive pairing. So pair something that you don't like with something that you do like. So actually, that reward circuit is activated. So for example, after the gym, you have a sauna or you come back and you have your favorite meal, have some positive association with that. So there's almost this long-term neurological conditioning and it's only a matter of a few days and you start to lower that entry barrier to that thing you don't like or that's hard to do. Or even simpler things to lower the entry barrier is have everything ready so you have less, less excuses. Getting your gym kit ready on the bed, ready to be worn, you know, making sure everything is just easy for you to go and do that thing. Mm, yes, habit formation is key. And actually, when you said about positive pairing, it made me think I, I've been doing that, as I say, because I, I have to, I really have to find reasons to make sure that I still get out and train yeah. and run. And so one of my positive pairings is that I'm currently listening to an audio book and I absolutely love an author. He's called Adam Grant. I'm sure you're familiar with yeah. his work and he's written a book called Hidden Potential. Now, I really love Adam Grant's books. And I always savor them because he only, you know, it's been two years since the last one. So I only allow myself now to listen to oh, the audio book yeah. when I'm out running. And so, for example, today I was like, oh, I was like, I can't, I was actually looking forward to my run because I get to listen to the book more than the run. So whatever it is that you need, whether it's like a a podcast that you love and it comes out every, let's say it comes out every Tuesday, power hour, then wait for that episode and save it up and think I'm going to listen to this when I'm, yeah, walking or or running or maybe at the gym because it's, yeah, that's been my positive pairing throughout for the last few weeks. Exactly. Like a little treat that is paired with something that you don't like, a reward for something that you know a punishment that you're doing yes absolutely and my last point on physical activity because you know I'm a runner and of course I could go on about running all day but it's not for everybody and a lot of people won't be you know necessarily want to lace up and go outside in the cold now 
in recent years, there's been a real shift in the health and fitness industry and, to, and from focusing on cardiovascular exercise and cardiovascular health to focusing on strength training and how crucial strength training is really for our life longevity, for our metabolic health and particularly for women, you know, it's really become quite popular and people are really starting to understand the benefit of that. So that's something that I also wanted to talk to you about to say, again, physical activity, moving our bodies, any activity is good activity, right? But what is it specifically about strength training that we should all be, that we should all know and should encourage us all to be lifting and lifting heavy? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's well known that Sure, running is great. Cardiovascular exercise is great for heart health and lung health and brain health and overall body health. But overwhelmingly, there is evidence suggesting that regular strength training offsets muscle loss and sarcopenia with age, which increases the risk of various conditions, including metabolic health. Maintenance of muscle is key because muscle is not just something that looks good. It's not just aesthetically pleasing in the modern world. It actually has a role in regulating metabolic health. It improves your insulin sensitivity. So your blood sugar levels can be controlled and deranged or abnormal blood sugar levels and insulin resistance or developing insulin resistance is one of the hallmarks of a lot of chronic metabolic diseases. Mm. Muscle also reduces the risk of falls when you're older. And as a doctor in the hospital, I see a lot of elderly people coming in with falls and fractures, and that significantly increases their risk of mortality and death. And yeah, it just keeps you fitter longer and exercise, particularly resistance training, as I've mentioned before, maintains, or I should say not maintains, but at least slows down the rate of bone density loss. And all of these factors is essentially maybe not anti-aging, but it slows down the aging process. And in the world mm. we live in right now, where there's an obsession that we want to live longer and anti-aging is more in focus than ever, and we're looking at all these various pills and potions and supplements, the most easy, low-hanging fruit and free supplement is exercise and resistance training. You heard it here, you see? And that's like, so great when I get to have conversations with people like yourself, because I don't know, I sometimes think people get put in a box and obviously I'm in the, the fitness box. And so people think, oh, of course you're gonna tell us to strength train and to run. But it's, you know, like, as you said, there's so many things beyond our aesthetics, beyond our, you know, our social, the social benefits of exercise as well. Yeah. And I think that point around life longevity, because you're right, the obsession with, people wanting to live longer, but not look older. Mm. That's, you know, a real thing that like I said, anti-aging, but also this focus on health span as yeah. well as lifespan. Cause let's be honest, we are living longer. Mm. Statistically, we're living longer, but we're not necessarily living better. Agreed, and yeah. I think personally, you know, I think about my, my grandmother when, before she died, she had Alzheimer's dementia and the last few years of her life, her physical body was still, you know, I'd say she was pretty well, you know, in terms of the fact she could walk, she could run, she was, she would run for the bus if she was <laughs> going to miss the bus, you know, she was strong. And so it was really sad actually to see that cognitive decline yeah. and how rapid it was and how, how limiting the last few years of her life were unrecognizable really. Um, and it really kind of put a bit of fear in me, I suppose, as a personal experience to think, wow, if I'm going to live say 10 years longer than, hmm. than our, our previous, you know, parents and grandparents, those last 10 years of your life, 
you want to be able to live well Absolutely. and I wanted to be able to, to to walk and to enjoy things and to you know all the things that we we hope to be able to do um and I think that's where you know people in their 20s 30s 40s you might think oh life longevity and oh you know prevention of this and that when I'm in my 70s and 80s and you think oh I don't really care about it now yeah but actually prevention it does start now doesn't it for those yeah. for, for Absolutely. however long we're gonna live. You, you plant the seeds of your later years health in your younger years. And we have known from the data out there right now, for example, you mentioned Alzheimer's dementia. We know that whilst the symptoms may not start in your 20s or 30s, the disease process often begins decades before they clinically manifest the symptoms. So it's actually mm -hmm. our health in our 20s, 30s and 40s, our habits such as our sleep, our diet, our exercise, our social connections, all of these things, you're basically cooking the ingredients right now and it will be baked, you know, when you're older. Mm. Wow, it's very powerful. So the next topic, I suppose, that I wanted to dive into with you is immune system. Now you talk about this in the book and I was like, ah, great, I'm gonna get into this. And I think at this time of the year, people, you know, obviously people have coughs and colds and winter flus. And sometimes there's this awful, awful stomach bugs that mm. tend to come back from nursery or from school and take out the entire house. Um, and so I wanted to kind of myth bust a little bit with you maybe, and also give people some actionable things they could think about this winter. Now, I've heard people say, oh, I've got a great immune system. You know, I work in a school or I work in a hospital and, you know, I don't get sick ever. Um, and other people will say, oh, I get, I tend to get ill all the time. I know people personally who, if they get a cold, it tends to, you know, or flu, they might be taken out for maybe a week. And other people who, you know, they can shake it off in a day or yeah. two. So I guess where to begin? When it comes to our immune system at this time of the year, is it a myth that some people have these very enhanced, robust immune systems and some people's don't. Um, is that is that true or not? Is that a myth? Um, there's a bit of nuance to it. I, I would say that, yes, some people's immune systems may be, quote unquote, stronger, uh, but it's, it's a very complex process. And over the years, I've realized and appreciated how complex it is as I've as we've as a society learned more about the hidden world living inside us, which is the microbiome. And we know increasingly that the microbiome determines our immune system health and also influences it right from when the day we're born. You know, it, it's determined by whether you're born by C-section or vaginal delivery, whether you're breastfed or not breastfed, whether you grow up around, you know, in an urban environment or in the countryside, whether you're surrounded by animals or farms or fields, the types of food you eat, the people you interact with, vaccinations that you may have. There are so many factors which go into creating your immune system. And there are some people in that process who may have overactive immune systems and develop autoimmune disease. So they have very heightened alert immune systems, but that doesn't mean it's stronger because obviously they have a chronic condition like ulcerative colitis or rheumatoid arthritis. So I think when we say things or we have these phrases that are promoted or advertised like so-and-so, this product can boost your immune system you don't really want your immune system boosted because it can turn on you. What you do want is you want simple things that can assist your immune system or reduce your risk of infection in the first place or essentially diversify your microbiome because the microbiome is linked to your immune system. Okay, so 
diverse microbiome. So for anyone listening who I'm sure they're familiar with this, so the gut microbiome, I think the, the recommendation is 30 different plants uh, a week. Is that correct? So different fruits, vegetables, different colors. You want to get lots of fiber, different things on your plate. Yeah. So if someone's thinking, okay, I want to diversify my gut microbiome, um, other than, okay, switching out their fruits and vegetables, is there anything else when it comes to even just, I suppose, absorbing the food that we're eating because i i heard someone recently say that it's not about the food that we eat it's about the food that we can absorb and i thought that was quite interesting as well she was talking about you know gut health and saying that there are a lot of things whether it's stress or caffeine Mm. or lack of sleep that mean that even if you are eating 30 plants a week you still might have poor gut health so could you give us i suppose three things that we could all try this week to improve our gut health Yeah. So for example, you mentioned about absorption. One common thing which springs to mind is, for example, iron absorption, whether you have iron from plant-based sources or from meat sources. When you have it from plant-based sources, it's non-heme iron. And when you have it from animal-based proteins or sources, it's heme iron. And the body typically absorbs the heme iron better than non-heme iron, but you can actually improve the absorption of the plant-based iron and all iron in general by combining that iron source. So say you have some steak or some red meat or even some chickpeas, you combine it with a source of vitamin C. So, you know, some spinach, for example, that will increase your iron absorption. That's one way to boost absorption. But yeah, another, another way to diversify your microbiome is really to have not just 30 grams of fiber a day, but looking into the types of food you eat and making sure you have a balance of both soluble and insoluble fibers. You need both types of fibers. The soluble fibers are able to be dissolved in water more easily. The insoluble fibers are more like a scrub for your intestines and really gets every last bit to ensure you have good bowel motions. And thirdly, it's Great having all of these sources of prebiotic fibers in your diet and different colored vegetables, but actually one key thing is having probiotics in your food that you eat, not not supplements. You know, Mm. I've prescribed probiotics for patients who have got specific bowel conditions, who've had specific bowel surgery. The supplements do not work for the average human. It's more of a hype than health. But actually, there's an abundance of bacteria living in many of the foods we eat. So, you know, just Greek yogurt, for example, that has a lot of strains of the lactobacillus bacteria, which are usually associated with good gut health. So those would be three simple things that people could do. Great. Grab a pen and take note. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And 
And that leads me on to the next topic because part of our immune system, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I have read a lot recently about vitamin D, vitamin D deficiency. I know that in the winter months, I've seen a lot of brands out there promoting, you know, sunlight lamps that you can have in your house. And, you know, of course, it's, it, we know that we need a certain amount of vitamin D and we need sun exposure. But if you live in the UK in the winter, it's not helpful when it's dark in the morning and it's dark in the afternoon, it's dark all the time. Yeah. And when you're outside, the only part of your skin that might be exposed might be your face. Mm. So I wanted to get into the vitamin D discussion with you first. And then I want to talk to you about when we're talking about sun exposure, SPF, because again, this is in the book and I know you talk about it, but I'll be honest with you as a person of color and as someone who, you know, reading all this stuff about vitamin D, I've been thinking, okay, I don't want to put SPF on every day. I want to get some sun on my skin. I want to get vitamin D. I know that it's responsible for our sleep wake cycle Mm -hmm. and melatonin release. There's so much, there's so much power essentially in the sun. We need the sun on our skin. But of course we are now in, as you said before, anti-aging, don't get a wrinkle, SPF, and we're told to kind of cover our skin every day, regardless of the season. So I have so many questions on this. Let's start with the immune system and the vitamin D. Is the lack of vitamin D that we're probably all, you know, probably all vitamin D deficient in the UK right now, is that impacting our immune system? That's my first question. Yeah, absolutely. So vitamin D, Traditionally, people think it has a role to play in strengthening our bones. It goes beyond that. It helps with muscle, with memory, mood, as well as the immune system as well, uh, and testosterone levels. So there's a clear link between vitamin D deficiency and an impact on all of those things that I've mentioned. So certainly we need to optimize vitamin D levels, particularly if you're living in northern hemispheric countries, Scandinavian countries, and places like the UK. So it is impacting our immune Absolutely, systems. And yeah. as you said, all those other things like mood, et cetera. Now, supplementation. is Does vitamin D supplementation, is that is that something we should consider? Is it something that's useful? Does it work? Yeah, it's one of the very few supplements that are evidence-based and that I actually I take. I'm very skeptical of most food supplements and herbal remedies and uh, vitamins, but vitamin D is something that I take, particularly someone who's got darker skin and living in a country where there's less sunlight, particularly during the winter months. I think it's very beneficial in the winter months, uh, especially to take a vitamin D tablet or capsule once a day, I would say probably at least from October to March. Those are typically classified as winter months and there's nothing really wrong if you take it every day. It's very difficult to overdose on vitamin D and there's not really a significant downside to that. And I think most people don't need to worry about going above, rather they're stuck in the deficient zone. And yeah, I think there is clinical evidence to suggest that you can optimize your mood, your energy levels, maintain your bone health, et cetera, by at least making sure you're not vitamin D deficient. Mm, Okay, great. So add to basket, vitamin (laughs) D supplements. So the sunlights, the lamps, um, are you familiar with the Mm. the lights that I'm talking about? So you can have them in your home, on your desk or somewhere in your house and you sit with it on your face. I don't actually have one, so I'm not speaking anecdotally. I haven't tried it yet, but I have seen a lot of people talking about this in the winter and saying, get a sun lamp, put that on your face. Is that going to, yeah, move the needle on our, because surely it's not the same, the UV rays that we would get from the sun. No, I think the sun lamps, the advantage of the sun lamps in winter is just to elevate your mood because it Mm. gives you more 
artificial light sources, which can make you feel more alert in the morning. You know, our circadian clocks, our biological clocks are entrained to wake up when it's bright in the morning and feel tired when it's darker at night. In the winter, it's dark in the morning and dark at night. And we struggle to wake up, shrug off that lethargy, feel alert in the morning. And when we don't feel alert, that will impact our mood as well. So those sun lamps will improve your mood. Certainly there is some, some role for that, but it will not improve your synthesis of vitamin D. You do need the sun for that and you need dietary sources of vitamin D as well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, Dr. Curran, honestly, I am the person who talks about circadian rhythm all day, every day to anyone who will <laughs> listen. And especially when it comes to sleep hygiene and yeah, having children of different ages and stages, it's the one thing that I kind of say to everyone, all parents, all friends is about light. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that, you know, having lights on at night, night lights, all of that. I'm a little bit kind of hardcore with, you know, no night lights. It's got to be dark so that your body mm. knows that it's time to sleep and you're not, you know, you don't have a night light in your uh, child's, you know, near their bed late at night yeah. or all night some people you know they have it all night and then also yeah I say to the kids if you wake up in the night you know you have to go to the bathroom don't put the light on <laughs> my, my stepdaughter she's always like but I can't see I'm like you can just feel your way around it's you know it's not pitch black but I'm like don't put the bright electric light on at two o'clock in the morning you know that kind of alert exactly. shocks your yeah. body so yeah circadian rhythm big on that and of course encouraging people if they can to get daylight within the first hour of waking exactly, to yeah. feel that alertness but as you said at this time of the year it's like good luck with that mm. so moving on then to so in the book i know you talked it's only a brief part but you talked about spf yeah. and saying of course that we need to protect our skin and that we need to wear spf um now i know that spf 30 blocks 97 percent of uv uvb rays um so can we still absorb vitamin d if we're covered if we've covered our face and neck in spf 30 and we've got a coat on and we're going out for our walk to get some steps and to get some daylight what's going on there yeah so like you said not every single percent of the uv rays are blocked even at the highest amount of spf that you use and i think the trade-off is significantly that protective in terms of reducing your risk of skin cancer and photo aging of the skin. Now, beyond that, you only need 10 to 15 minutes of sunlight exposure to get all the vitamin D you need and the synthesis you need from the skin. Even if you're covered head to toe in sunscreen and you go out, you're still being exposed to the UV rays and you only need a short amount of sun exposure to get all the vitamin D you need from the skin. I, I don't think there's any evidence suggesting that sunscreen usage is associated with reduced vitamin D levels at all. I mean, there's evidence to suggest contrary. So we don't have to worry about that myth at all. Ah, oh, you see, I'm so glad that you've put that to rest for us because it's honestly, it's a discussion and a debate that I've had with people before. And especially yeah, as a person of color, and yeah. I, I don't want to sp speak for everyone, but I do think that in the black community, mm people are a bit more relaxed about wearing SPF. And I know that, yeah, my white friends, they're just like SPF every day, I think because yeah. they don't want to wrinkle. Yeah. But in the black community, it's a lot more relaxed. And um, and we know, of course, that we still need to, yeah, protect our skin from harmful rays. I think a lot of that misconception also comes, you know, I, I experienced the same thing with the Asian communities as well, that they say, oh, back in India or in Africa or in Bangladesh or wherever you are, you don't see a lot of people having skin cancers. And I think the fallacy there is that you do. And the reason why it may not be so obvious is that 
it's often picked up later or it's underdiagnosed in those countries. Things like skin cancers are overwhelmingly overdiagnosed in the USA and the UK uh, because people are possibly more health literate and more health aware and health conscious. So when they see a mole that could be concerning, they go to their dermatologist. There's easier access to healthcare in the US or the UK compared to somewhere in India or in Africa. That is very clear. Health is not equitable. So we need to try and get rid of these health myths to prevent people succumbing to things like skin cancers. For example, you know, Bob Marley, he died from a metastatic melanoma. You know, so yeah, it's not, sure. you know, people of colored skin are not immune to skin cancers um, directly from sunlight exposure. You see, we're just busting all the myths today. This is why I knew it was going to be so fantastic. And also, as I said, why there's just so much in the book, you know. Now, let's talk about the title because it is This Book May Save Your Life. Now, life and death, of course, this is a big you know, it's a big topic, it's very important. And I think that for some people, there's an element of fear mm. when it comes to health, you know, this kind of head in the sand idea, because it can be, you know, it can be incredibly scary. And when I think about conversations I have with different generations, as you just said then about health literacy, it's not the same for everyone. So if, for example, I'm trying to think of who I would give this book to, you know, I think this is, uh, I would probably give this book to someone who, in my own family anyway, who maybe is a little bit older, and they might have actually a little bit of fear about going to the doctor or a little bit of fear about learning more about their own uh, health and body because they think that do you know what I mean that fear mm. of like oh what am I gonna I might have to change my whole diet or I might have to um I don't know I think it's it's I hear that from a lot of people especially when I talk about really specific things like glucose monitoring or about breath work or about sometimes people have this real fear to engage at all because they're yeah I guess they have like a health anxiety or a fear so I suppose yeah who was in you because that's what came to my mind when I was when I was reading the book who was in your mind when you sat down to write this book um yeah I mean I, I based it a lot on the people who watch my videos which is a lot of people that the demographic of people who watch my videos can range from 12 to 80 years old because health is important for everyone. And the way I write my book is that, you know, although there's a lot of my own personal brand of humor in there, there's also just a lot of simplified science and medicine. And I think as doctors who are meant to be dishing out information to other people, there's sometimes a lot of jargon used and there's not a lot of simple layman's terms and simple science that's spread to the public. And I think that what what it was for the average person who cares about health but doesn't know where to start and just wants a better understanding of their own body, that would be suitable. But also for someone who is interested in health, is invested in their health, does know some of the science, but wants a little bit more as well. It's also there's stuff there as well. And just, you know, I think everyone could stand to learn more about their own health and, you know, just take a greater interest in being more responsible for their own health as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, on this show, obviously, I'm all about encouraging people to take action and to be empowered to do so. And I think it's a really great point, you know, that word responsibility, because I think without being too, um, you know, doom and gloom about it, our health essentially, once it becomes basically, we're either healthy or we're not. Mm. And I think once we're no longer healthy, once we have illness or disease or, you know, a chronic condition, I feel like for often for people, that is when their attention becomes yes. 
you know, focused on their health. And sadly for some people, it's too late. You know, they're then in a situation where they may be, you know, facing a surgery or a medication or that's a real lifestyle change. You know, I'm talking to, I want people to change their lifestyle out of choice, yeah. their choice, which is, you know, start walking more or get more fiber or get more sleep. You know, something that you do, which you say, I'm making this choice because Sadly, I think for a lot of people, they wait until that choice is taken away from them. And it's no longer a choice that you have to make when you have to, yeah, be prescribed with the medication for the rest of your life or, or have a surgery. So yeah, this this point around life and death and it being so important, that key word really is responsibility. So as I say, not to be too doom and gloom about it, I want to encourage people, I want to motivate and I never want to kind of feel either as though I'm like, judgmental wagging my finger none of that like I know it's it can be hard there's a lot of barriers but I want people to I suppose yeah take that message that you just said and think I am responsible for my own health and life and my work and busyness and my kids and my partner like we want to give all the you know to everybody else but your job you know if you're too busy and too stressed because of your job to make time for exercise your job you know, you're replaceable in your job. That's the truth. You are replaceable in your job. You're not replaceable to your kids. You're not replaceable to your partner. And it's, you know, it's it's that important. So yeah, I guess I could say I could rant about this, (laughs) but it comes from a place of real passion because I really want people to, yeah, find people like yourself. And like I said, for me, it was kind of in my mind of like, oh, I could give this book to this person. Because don't you think sometimes coming from a doctor, you must find this Dr. Curran, that people are more open to going, okay, I'll read this book and I'll take this information than someone just saying to their mum, maybe like nagging them saying, mum, you should stop eating this or drinking that. Yeah, of course. I think there is, um, you know, for better or for worse, there is some degree of authority bias when you're an expert in some f- a specific field, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor and you say something within that field, someone is more likely to listen because you are, you know, a so-called expert in that field. So I try to leverage that degree of authority bias to provide a debunking of misinformation or provide evidence-based information because there's so much nonsense out there that people willingly listen to. Mm, Yes. Let's conclude with the Power Hour because this is the Power Hour podcast. So, Dr. Curran, I ask people, every guest on this show, to share with us their first hour of every single day. Now, it's fascinating for me and the listeners to find out what people do in the first hour, what they typically avoid, why they do it, what time they wake up, and how and why they start the day the way they do. So could you tell us, typically, what does the first hour of your day include? Yeah, so my first hour has radically changed over the past five years, and that's as I took a greater interest in my own health as well. Uh, So I wake up at 5.45 every morning um, because I've got a pretty busy schedule in my job as a surgeon. And so 5.45, I wake up. And the first thing I do um, is I actually, I go downstairs and I take my dog out for a 15 minute walk just in my garden. Um, So it's allowing him to, you know, answer the call of nature, but also Mm -hmm. allows me just to get out and get some oxygen, move my body, you know, shrug off some of that melatonin so I can start to feel more alert. And even though in the winter months it's a little bit darker, there's still some UV light percolating through the clouds, getting through the darkness and 
trying to make me feel more alert. And it's that morning light and alertness which sets you up for the evening. So that 15 minutes is fun for me. I'm bonding with my dog, giving him a cuddle. And then after then, I will always ensure I eat some breakfast. You know, there's some people who say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And there's some which says you should skip breakfast and do intermittent fasting, whatever. There is no set recipe for every single person. The reason I have breakfast is because I need to be fueled for my surgery. So I have something which can last me and keep me full for a few hours. So I'm, I'm looking at something which has a good amount of protein and also has a good amount of fiber as well, which keeps me full and it's digested over a longer period of time. And I'm making sure I hydrate in the morning. I'll have, um, and this is another another one supplement I do take is creatine. And I mix creatine with a big uh, slug of water as well. So I'm rehydrating because the most dehydrated part of your day will be the first thing in the morning because you've been sleeping for seven or eight hours. Um, and we know that dehydration can affect your focus, your mood, your reflexes, your coordination, all of these things I need when I'm operating on a human being. So I'm making sure I'm adequately hydrated. And we know that creatine, the most evidence-based research supplement in the world probably, that has an impact on brain health. 5% of creatine is stored in the brain, 95% in the muscles. So um, creatine with the water, having a good source of breakfast, uh, and then that's essentially, you know, my first hour. And then it's sort of uh, crept away from me. I need to get to work. Great. It sounds good. But I want to loop back to when you said that you've changed it in the last five years. Yeah. So what was the catalyst for that change? And what was the what was your first hour like before? So my first hour before would essentially be getting up in the morning, checking emails, checking messages that I've got overnight, uh, going straight into sort of showering, getting ready, and then rushing everything and just going straight into the car and then going into work. And sometimes if I didn't have enough time or I woke up slightly later, skipping breakfast and not having a specific wake up time. So actually all of these things, you know, actually, and that's a valuable lesson knowing what I did wrong for myself as well. So getting up at erratic wake up times, we know that one of the most important things is keeping a sleep schedule. So your wake up and sleep up sleep times, keeping them relatively consistent at least 80 to 90% of the times. So you've got good sleep hygiene that I wasn't doing and I now I do. 5.45 for me doesn't feel painful because I'm very used to it over over two years now. Another thing would be skipping uh, breakfast. Now, a lot of people do that and that's absolutely fine, whether you're intermittent fasting or doing whatever you do. But for me, I needed something in the morning because because my last meal at night, the night before, was probably around 7 or 8 p.m. So mm -hmm. 12 hours of not eating, my glucose levels are low. And again, that affects your mood, energy, all of these things. I needed some source of fuel in my body. Again, that was something I wasn't doing. And checking phone messages in the morning, emails, that is very stressful. And getting into a high stress state as soon as you wake up in the morning actually affects your brainwave pattern and moves you from a sort of sleepful, slowly getting into a calmer brainwave pattern into an immediately alert, high energy brainwave pattern, which actually should be coming on later in the day. So you've almost accelerated your day just by jumping onto that little phone and getting onto all those messages. So I've changed all of those things and those are just small habits, but they've made a significant change in my day and in my health, I feel. 
Yeah, and this is it because I think what you've just described is so many pe- for so many people that is their morning. You know, they laugh when they say hear the words morning routine, or you know, I've done um, talks about the power hour before um, in a corporate setting, and some people are like, "Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I wake up and I exercise, or I go for a walk, or I have my morning journal." And there's other people that kind of roll their eyes and go, "Morning routine? Like literally, I wake up, like you say, grab my phone. My job is really stressful. I have to be straight away looking at what what needs to happen." that day I grab a coffee and head to the station and get on the train so for a lot of people the 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 morning that you described before is the normal the normal and this feeling of you know this is why I say to often to people about the the kind of the magic of the power hour why it's so impactful and I say to them there's nothing magic about it it is simply the fact that you are creating time that you otherwise wouldn't have, you don't feel that sense of rushing. Mm. And so much of our lives, so much of the world makes us feel as though we need to rush, that there isn't enough time, we are time poor, everything needs to be done yesterday, everything's urgent. And I think that for so many people actually, having that hour before you have to be responsive, be you know connected, be available for people, is actually reclaiming time and just going actually this first hour, I'm not rushing. Yeah. I can just sip my coffee or do my exercise. Um, but I also yeah, wanted to know what was the catalyst? Why did you change from that morning routine to the one you have now? I just felt mentally as well as physically, I was really sluggish. And for me as a surgeon, I wanted to do the best I could. And if I'm operating on a human being and sometimes it's life and death, I owe it not not to myself. I owe it to someone I'm operating on to be at the best of my ability. And I often compare, and some you know people may laugh, when I compare a surgeon to an athlete, an athlete going into a race is as optimized as they can be because they want to be at peak performance to you know get that extra 0.1 second or that extra whatever it is. Same as a surgeon. I'll often be operating for long hours and there will be lots of very worrying and interesting things which happen in the middle of surgery. And my stamina, my mental clarity, my focus, my reflexes, all of these things need to be at its peak to make sure I can do the best job for that patient. So how can I do that? It was by going backwards and looking at my daily habits and seeing, okay, am I as fresh as I can be? Am I as prepared? Is I haven't got any tummy pain. I'm feeling fueled. My brain feels fresh. I feel alert. I feel strong. All of these things were really important to my job, but also personally me as well, just feeling good in the day. Mm. Yes, because we all know how good it feels to feel good. Yeah. Dr. Curran, thank you so much for joining us on the Power Hour podcast. I've absolutely loved it. And I'm sure that the listeners hopefully are also feeling a little bit more motivated, a little bit more optimistic. And I really hope that they will, of course, check out the book. This book may save your life. It is available now. It is out now. So whether you like to listen on Audible or whether you want to get a copy, make sure you check it out. Thank you so much, Dr. Curran. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, I will be back next week with another episode. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 